All right, Dave. This is, uh, I think this is, this could be my favorite episode so far <laughs> um, in terms of, yeah, John Brown. You want to talk about AJP Taylor saying Garibaldi was the only wholly admirable figure of the 19th century? I, I uh, That's where I've gotten to with John. Wow. Really? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Oh. But, um, but you wanted to start with uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. We, yeah, we have to. I, I... I don't know how we left her off the last episode, but I just realized, wait a second, wait a second, we have to include this. So we met her brother. He was uh, obviously an abolitionist, and he reported on uh, the riots in uh, Alton, was it? Alston or Alton, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Harriet Beecher Stowe comes from an abolitionist family. In 1852, she published a novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, subtitled Life Among the Lowly. Uh, No bones about it. It's an anti-slavery novel. It tells the story of uh, Uncle Tom, uh, a black slave who is sold down the river to a very nasty uh, slave owner named Simon Legree. And both of those names have, you know, descended into uh, lore I guess if they were around today, they'd be memes. Well, I have very few criticisms of Malcolm X, <laughs> but he calls he called kind of collaborationist black people Uncle Tom, right? And I didn't. I've never read the novel, but UN read it, um, and she uh, she told me that Uncle Tom is not a bad no uh, character, and he's not col- a collaborator at all. No, so it's, it was kind of unfair of Malcolm X to. Uh, to do that yeah apparently sambo like he could have called sambo yes. was the yeah so he could have called collaborators sambos i suppose but yeah yeah uh, yeah no that the whole character has a troubled history but the original impact was enormous uh i don't know how you measure the impact of a book but boy it had one it's um Okay, maybe it's not the greatest novel in the world. It's a little bit uh, sentimental. It's certainly 19th century uh, and and a little bit dated. But it was the second best-selling book of the 19th century, which wow. is, yeah, after, huh. after the Bible, of course. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they sold... Um, 300,000 copies in the U.S. in the first year after it was published. Oh, wow. That would still be an excellent... Yeah. Yeah, but here's Mm. the thing. 300,000 copies in the U.S., 1 million copies in Great Britain. Ooh. Yeah, and now you you think about how hard it is to support the South and to support the slavery South Mm. when... You know, half the people you know have read Uncle Tom's Cabin and are talking about it. Yeah. So there's a, an apocryphal story that Abraham Lincoln met uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and said something like, so this is the little lady who started this great war. It, <laughs> you know, it probably didn't happen. Uh, you don't even find a, a mention of the story and the quotation until 1896. So yeah, it sounds a little flippant for Lincoln. I got to say, Lincoln was pretty grim when he talked about the war. And yeah, 
talked about it pretty tragically, so it doesn't yeah. quite fit to me. No, it sounds like a later add-on. Uh, it's a the book itself, though, is a fascinating uh, question. You know, how much impact does literature or uh, art or um, gosh, uh, photography uh, possibly have on mm-hmm. social change, politics? Uh, there, are, there are a lot more examples later on, but this is a, a really early one it antagonized the south no end obviously they hated it uh they criticized it uh one southern novelist uh declared that her work was utterly false some called it criminal (laughs) (laughs) one bookseller uh in uh alabama was forced to leave town for selling the novel what Uh, happened to free speech Oh, yeah, please. Uh, She got threatening letters. So there's another fine tradition that has endured, you know, death threats and uh, rape threats to females whose political views you don't agree with. Um, Another fine Southern tradition. Somebody sent her a package with a slave's severed ear. Right. Uh, And then, of course, they started writing uh, their own novels in opposition to hers you know, portraying. <laughs> <laughs> Which have come down to us through the ages with such famous titles as... <laughs> Halcyon Days of Slavery or My Happy Plantation. Um, some, some critics pointed out that she had not lived in the South, that she had not lived on a plantation. She, you know, didn't know the conditions. But she said that she based her characters on stories she was told by runaway slaves in Cincinnati. So she also saw um, uh, on the Ohio River uh, seeing a husband and wife being sold separately, Mm -hmm. so splitting up the family. She also read newspaper and magazine accounts. I I don't think you can really accuse her of exaggerating. If anything, she left out some of the more gruesome stories that were available at the time. So this didn't make Southerners like abolitionists anymore. <laughs> and then, <laughs> well, and then to really endear them. <laughs> well, this is 1852, right? So right. Uh, in the early and mid 50s, that's right. when we had all of those instances of, you know, riots and violence against abolitionists, you know, up to and including murder. So mm-hmm. the South was pretty upset. Yeah. And they're going to get more upset. They sure are. Uh, so, in 1847, John Brown met uh, Frederick Douglass, and uh, they uh, they spent some time at Douglass's house in Rochester. And Brown laid out his idea at that time in 1847, and the idea was basically this. Uh, and I'm now quoting. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Most of what I'm going to do uh, is quoting Du Bois because Du Bois wrote in 1919 a biography of John Brown. And that's my main source for this whole episode. So, quote, 
His plan, as it then lay in his mind in 1847, had much to commend it. It did not, as some suppose, contemplate a general rising among the slaves and a general slaughter of the slave masters. An insurrection, he thought, would only defeat the object, but his plan did contemplate the creating of an armed force which should act at the very heart of the South. So there's a map I'm going to include as the image for this uh, episode. And it's of the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, and Du Bois calls this, calls this stretch the Great Black Way. Um, and he's quoting uh, now, this is Du Bois quoting John Brown, who told Douglas the following. He tells, du John Brown tells Douglas, these mountains are the basis of my plan. God has given the strength of the hills to freedom. They were placed here for the emancipation of the Negro race. They are full of natural forts where one man for defense will be equal to a hundred for attack. They are full also of good hiding places where large numbers of brave men could be concealed and baffle and elude pursuit for a long time. I know these mountains well and could take a body of men into them and keep them there despite all efforts of Virginia to dislodge them. The true object to be sought is first of all to destroy the money value of slavery property, and that can only be done by rendering such property insecure. My plan then is to take at first about 25 picked men and begin on a small scale supply them with arms and ammunition and post them in squads of fives on a line of 25 miles. The most persuasive of these shall go down into the fields from time to time as opportunity offers and induce the slaves to join them, seeking and selecting the most restless and daring. And the idea was the restless and daring go up with Brown into the mountains and the ones that are not ready to pick up the gun, they go north along the Underground Railroad, which Brown was a long time railroad man as they called them or you know railroad person he's so he's studied guerrilla warfare he studied the spanish example he studied the maroon societies of the caribbean he studied haiti extensively mm. and so he thinks about it in terms of a mountain guerrilla war so his arm he's not talking about a slave uprising he's talking no. about guarding the way north so that slaves can come to the Alleghenies and move along it without being recaptured. That's right. But it, it, it ends up being, he, un, he understands that the slave power is not going to let that happen. So he contemplates a guerrilla campaign in the mountains with lots of groups of um, Southern U.S. troops hunting them and them being able to have that mobility and defense capacity from the mountains. Uh, and so in that sense, we've mentioned slave revolts by Gabriel Prosser and Nat Turner, uh, and they were also around that same area. Uh, and Du Bois notes this. He says, Gabriel Prosser, Nat Turner, and John Brown all believed that the Alleghenies were the key to defeating slavery. And then he quotes something maybe you can help us understand, because I don't no, we're gonna. We're, I mean, it's anticipating the next episode in a way. But he says it was not until Grant floated down this path in a sea of blood that slavery finally fell. So, do you know what that I, means? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. So, I I looked at the map and saw where the Alleghenies are. And what's interesting is that on the eastern side of the Alleghenies is the Shenandoah Valley, okay, which is critical in the Civil War, uh, and must be, it yeah. did end up 
being part of the the end of the war, and on the other side of it is is the uh, the Mississippi, of course, the Mississippi Valley and all that territory. Right. So, yeah, I'm not right. sure. I'm not sure. Okay. So before John Brown did a number of things, mainly he was in agriculture for his whole life, like most. I guess, Americans at that time in that part of the States. But he did have a fairly successful wool. He was a wool merchant for a while. Um, and he went to he went to Europe. He traveled across Europe uh, on a wool merchant kind of mission. And he just, you know, Du Bois says that he was never that good of an, um, a merchant because he couldn't uh, wrap his head around he couldn't wrap his head around charging more than a fair price or <laughs> flux, you know, it was all, he was just a little too Christian about it all. That's a um, <laughs> right. So even when he, and even, and he was also distracted. So even when he was in Europe, he was often trying to figure out what was happening in terms of military affairs and looking, look at, I think he went to uh, Prussia or Germany uh, to look at soldiers on parade and um, he there was technological innovations in weaponry at that time too so the sharps rifle which he was really interested in and his men did have better rifles um, at the raid that I'm going to eventually get to by the end of this um, episode so he he talked about that rifle a lot, but there there's a story where he says he he came to conclude that fortifications were kind of irrelevant um, because of cannon and because of the increasing power of uh, artillery, and so he he said that a well armed brave soldier is the best fortification, and the way to fight is to press to close quarters. That was the, those were some of the conclusions he came Interesting. to about military affairs. Um, and he actually wrote a kind of a guerrilla warfare manual specifically for underground, underground railroad uh, people. So I guess in some ways that there were the, there was this kind of set of quotes by John Brown that would circulate among the underground railroad about how to get things done. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you some of John Brown's wisdom <laughs> from the guerrilla warfare manual. Uh, he says, should one of your number be arrested, you must collect together as quickly as possible so as to outnumber your adversaries. Your plans must be known only to yourself and with the understanding that all traitors must die wherever caught and proven to be guilty. When engaged, do not work in halves, but make clean work with your enemies and be sure you meddle not with any others. By going about your business quietly, you will get the job disposed of before the number that an uproar would bring together can collect. Be firm, determined, and cool, but let it be understood that you are not to be driven to desperation without making it an awful dear job to others as well as to you. Give them to know that those who live in wooden houses should not throw fire and that you are just as able to suffer as your white neighbors. Um, he's got another one. Uh, a lot, that's, he's, they're getting a little uh, more tough as I go continue. Uh, he says, a lasso might possibly be applied to a slave catcher for once with good effect. Hold on to your weapons and never be persuaded to leave them, part with them, or have them far away from you. Stand by one another and 
by your friends while a drop of blood remains and be hanged if you must, but tell no tales out of school. Make no confession. Union is strength. Without some well-digested arrangements, nothing to good purpose is likely to be done. And uh, and let the demand be never so great. So um, an, a reporter from the New York Tribune once... Um, <clears throat> Brown ended up, I'm going to get to this, but Brown ended up having to go on the run after a certain event, (laughs) which uh, some characterized not entirely, I think, unfairly as a massacre, uh, which I'll get to. But he ended up having to go on the run and a a visitor, uh, I mean, a a reporter visited his camp. He had an armed camp and the visitor the reporter was struck by the fact that the camp was very well organized. There was no swearing allowed. Lots of praying, <laughs> and uh, and Brown told uh, the reporter what kind of soldier he was looking for. So he says, "It's a mistake, sir, that our people make when they think that bullies are the best fighters, or that they are the men fit to oppose these South- Southerners. Give me men of good principles, God-fearing men, men who respect themselves, and with a dozen of them, I will oppose any hundred such men as these Buford ruffians. I'll tell you more about the ruffians uh, soon. Mm-hmm. Um, they ate two meals of bread on skillets a day. They had a little bit of ginger or molasses with their creek water. And he had a rule of you do not kill unless absolutely necessary. Um, and whenever they took uh, spoils, the horses would go to new recruits, the cattle and the provision would go to the poor uh, free staters. Again, I'll explain what free staters are yeah. uh, a little bit in a little that, bit. That's really it. I mean, the bit about the lasso is a bit <laughs> harsh. Odd. Yeah. Well, yeah. but interesting principles. So when there's trouble, gather in large numbers to, you know, yeah. intimidate the, uh, the posse or the slave hunters. Yeah. And, um, the idea that uh, uh, bullies aren't the best fighters, if you give them the impression that you're willing to, to die, or better yet, that you're willing to kill them, yes, um, that changes the whole dynamic. You're not these meek, mild abolitionists lining up to get beaten or shot. Yeah. Interesting. That's exactly what he did he changed the whole dynamic that's that's what he did Uh, okay so in 1854 this is now some now we're getting to some context and i i think you're gonna fill in a little bit here too but in 1854 the indigenous people of uh these parts of territory that were taken by the united states in the mexican-american war so the kiowa comanche and osage indigenous uh I talked about these wars at the end of the Mexican American war episode and they were just, they've been displaced and the U S passes the Kansas Nebraska act. Remember we talked about the Missouri compromise of 1820, which said there was no slavery North of this line, a certain Mm -hmm. line, the Kansas Nebraska act overturns this and introduces what they call popular sovereignty as the criterion. Right. Which means that instead of Washington making the decision, they're going to have a vote in Kansas, like a referendum. Yeah, like a referendum in Kansas to determine whether they want to be a slave state or a not a slave state. So what happens is the abolitionists uh, try to send as many people to Kansas as they can, and the, the slavers from Missouri do the same. 
So the Kansas uh, free soilers have been going in since the war and since the indigenous have been displaced and they, they call themselves free soilers. They want to, they want this land. They don't want slavery. They want to start agricultural communities on this, uh, on, in Kansas without slavery. And once that referendum is announced, these Missouri and they call themselves ruffians, they go and they try to intimidate, scare, burn down houses, burn farms, kill people sometimes, all to try to displace the free soilers and also to um, ensure that when the referendum happens, it uh, it goes in the slavery yeah. way. And some of the free soilers are actually John Brown's sons who went there for partly to start their lives and partly to uh, make an abolitionist presence in in Kansas. I, I'm wondering why Kansas was the exception to the Missouri Compromise. Is it just geographical position because it straddles the yeah, it straddles the line. It straddles yeah. the line that had been decided on. Okay, yeah. Well, this leads to the period known as Bleeding Kansas from 1854 to 1861. Pretty nasty time to be in that territory. Uh, it featured all the great hallmarks of American history: uh, electoral fraud. Uh, assault, uh, raids, murder, all those things, um, violence to support your political views. Uh, yeah, we're kind of familiar with these things. The Free Soilers, um, part of their motivation is economic. I mean, here's open, free land. But once you move in and set up a farm, if somebody from Missouri moves in next to you with their slaves you can't compete. A single free farmer cannot compete with a slave owner who's got dozens uh, of laborers. So there's an economic uh, motivation next to the moral, uh, the ethical, and the religious objections to slavery. And what ended up happening was that the Missouri ruffians controlled a, a, a southern swath of Kansas and the Free Soilers controlled, you know, the north, the northeast portion. You had two capitals and two separate governments, both claiming to be the legitimate government of Kansas. And one of the nicknames, I mean, the, uh, the term bleeding Kansas may not be familiar to many Americans, but I'm sure they, they, they know what uh, Jayhawks are. Because the University of Kansas uh, sporting teams are the Jayhawks. But in, eight, in the 1850s, Jayhawkers were uh, free soilers. <laughs> Interesting that that Amazing. name has persisted. And Lawrence, uh, Kansas in particular, the capital, yes. was, uh, was an abolitionist stronghold. Although it wasn't especially strong, as we'll see. Stronghold isn't quite the term you would use in military terms. It's, no. It was a strong hold in terms of the number of abolitionists there that uh, had to leave when the slavers burned it down. But we'll get to that. Um, in 1855 is when this vote is held, March 30th, and Missourians come to Kansas by the thousands. They take over the polls. The newspaperman Horace Greeley is quoted in Du Bois as follows, quote, There was no disguise 
No pretense of legality, no regard for decency. On the evening before and the day of the election, nearly a thousand Missourians arrived at Lawrence in wagons and on horseback, well-armed with rifles, pistols, and bowie knives, and two pieces of cannon loaded with musket balls. Although but 831 legal electors in the territory voted, there were no less than 6,320 votes polled. They elected all the members of the legislature with a single exception in either house. The actual actual settlers held their own convention and repudiated the fraudulent one. Um, One of John Brown's sons writes home and says, a war of some magnitude now appeared to us brothers to be inevitable. He writes to his father asking for arms and ammunition. So Brown now appeals to some of these characters that we've talked about last episode, Frederick Douglass, McCune, James McCune Smith, Jarrett Smith, who's a free soiler, a uh, woman suffrage activist and abolitionist and has a lot of money. <laughs> so Brown, uh, Brown uh, wants them to put together a little bit of money so that he can go over there and uh, take care of business. Uh, he goes to the Syracuse abolitionist convention and he, he wants, he, Remember, and he's already planned for, I guess, eight years, this Allegheny war that he wants to start, um, this guerrilla war. But what they what the financial backers want him to do is go to Kansas. (laughs) So he uh, he does. Um, And it's very interesting because, again, Du Bois has a really interesting quote about what what Brown's place is in history. So in Kansas history, specifically Du Bois, I want to read this quote from Du Bois. He says, quote, one cannot read Kansas history without the feeling that the man who in all this bewildering broil was least the puppet of circumstances, the man who most clearly saw the real crux of the conflict, most definitely knew his own convictions and was readiest at the crisis for decisive action, was a man whose leadership lay not in his office, wealth, or influence, but in the white flame of his utter devotion to an ideal. So it's, it's just, it's a fascinating case for me about like what somebody can do in history, even though they have, he's just a guy like anybody else, you know, there's, he's got no titles, no money, no special rep, you know, he's basically an under operating underground for most of this time and uh it's pretty amazing anyway so um i'm gonna quote du bois again about what kinds of things brown does when he arrives in kansas i guess around 1855 quote john brown's procedure was characteristic oh this is about um so there there are ruffians from missouri and slaver armed bands from georgia camped on a in a place called swamp of the swan And Brown is staying very close. Brown's family, his sons, everybody is nearby. So, quote, John Brown's procedure was characteristic. With his surveying instruments in hand, one May morning, he saunters into their camp. So he saunters into the camp of these southern slaver ruffians. Now, returning to my quote, he was immediately taken for a government surveyor. And Brown, now I'm quoting Brown. (laughs) Brown says... The Georgians indulged in the utmost freedom of expression. One of them, who appeared to be the leader of the company, said, We've come here to say, to stay. 
We won't make no war on them as minds their own business, but all the abolitionists, such as them damn browns over there, we're going to whip, drive out, or kill. Any way to get shut of them by God. <laughs> why, would so, they, why would they tell him that? They just, any surveyor who's surveying land, um, who's a white guy uh, wandering around their camp, they're going to take for a, for a ruffian or for a, for a pro-slavery guy. So they, they don't know what he looks like, right? It's the, there's no social media. <laughs> there's no photos circulating. No, it's just curious that they would assume that a surveyor would be pro-slavery. Yeah, yeah, I guess. He's a government employee? Yes, all that. Actually, it says that. Um, it's, I, I, I did read that in Du Bois. Basically, Al, it, he, he says, Du Bois says something like, they took any government employee to be pro-slavery and they were right. <laughs> oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they assumed rightly that ever, anyone from the government was pro-slavery. Du Bois basically said that. Wow, this sounds so familiar. <laughs> right? So um, Brown, again, in terms of being a kind of a leader about what what should be done and how, he tells the Free Soilers, um, you know, there are they're coming they're coming for you and the only way to give them the impression that they can't just drive you off these lands is to retaliate um and the uh, most of the free soilers don't um don't want to do this the abolitionists don't want to do this uh in du bois's words he says quote they deemed it wise still to stick to the policy of passive resistance and in du bois's view that wisdom cost them dear so on, in 1856, on May 21st, these ruffians sack Lawrence. I think for the first time. <laughs> I think it's. I don't think it's last time. It's not. So Lawrence get. I mean Brown gets to Lawrence, um, but he gets there too late. The place is, has been sacked, and this is when he uh, he keeps kind of he's kind of he's kind of losing his uh, his patience. So he says, "Quote: I am eternally tired of hearing that word caution." It is nothing but the word of cowardice. Um, and there's a place uh, near where they live, um, which D Dutch Henry's Crossing, where his daughters-in-law are there, like the his son's wives, and the ruffians come and drive them off, burn their houses and their store uh, uh, around the same time as they sack Lawrence. So um, that's May 21st. On May 22nd, uh, the abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner is famously beaten in uh, Congress. In like, Congress. In, in Congress. In the Congress chambers by a congressman. Uh, Brooks, I think is his name. There's and he's probably beaten. a statue to him somewhere in the South. <laughs> and he's beaten really badly. Apparently he's basically not the same for, for the next three years. Yeah, uh, and, and this Southern senator who, who beat him is considered a hero in the South. Apparently wow. pieces of the cane that he used to beat Sumner were passed around like fragments of the true cross in the South. <laughs> well, Sumner goes on. Uh, I've been reading uh, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. So Sumner, it does not go away <laughs> in terms of uh, being a problem for the South. So he uh, gets his revenge anyway one, in some in some way. Um, so there's a black newspaper woman, Amelia R.M. Robinson, 
And she calls Brooks out. She calls him a cringing puppy. She calls him out for a duel with pistols, rifles, or cowhides. She says, you are afraid to meet a man? Dare you meet a woman? Um, and this is after this is incident, um, James McEwen Smith, the black American doctor uh, in New York, he says, our white brethren cannot understand us unless we speak to them in their own language. They recognize only the philosophy of force. That's not true. <laughs> if they're losing, they recognize the law. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There, I just wanted to add a piece there. I'm not sure it fits entirely, but I found it doing research, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, crime in the North in the 1850s and 60s consisted mainly of crimes against property, you know, theft, B&E, and, and mm-hmm. so on. Whereas in the South, crimes against people dominated. So Mississippi in 1850 had more recorded violent crime than all of New England put together. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they use violence to solve their disputes. Yeah. Um, 1856, from May 23rd to May 26th, uh, John Brown... Um, decides to enact this sort of retaliation that he (laughs) believes the free soilers should have been doing all along. So they, they figure out who it was that was responsible for burning uh, Dutch Henry's crossing, like basically figure out who they were, who the ringleaders were. Um, And they go to their houses at night, knock on their doors, tell them you're come outside. Uh, They're armed. So the men generally do go with them. He identified seven of the ringleaders, uh, but there, two of them weren't home. Uh, so uh, he uh, he takes the five of them out and has them killed with swords. So they just kill them. Uh, du Bois says, quote, These were not the leaders of the pro-slavery party in Kansas, but rather the dogs which were, free t- which were to worry the free state men to death. The ringleaders securely hedged back of United States bayonets in the Missouri militia, but their tools depended for their safety on terrorizing the localities wherein they lived. Here then, said John Brown, was the spot to strike, and once sentence of death had been formally passed, the band hurried to its task. Um, This is the uh, Osawatomie massacre, right? Yeah, I don't think it's... Yeah. I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think it's called the Osawatomie Massacre. I think it's got a different name. It starts with a P. Well, after this, though, he's he's known to the Southerners as Osawatomie Brown. Yeah, but this uh, the massacre is actually called the Potawatomie Massacre. Potawatomie oh, okay. Massacre. But so I don't think he's named for this massacre. He's named, <laughs> they're called the Osawatomie Company. Uh, but yeah, it's not. The massacre has a different name. Okay. Uh, So Du Bois again, quote, the timid rushed to disavow the deed. The free state people were silent and the pro-slavery party was roused to fury. Brown becomes an outlaw. Uh, Quote again, to this day, men differ as to the effect of John Brown's blow. Some say it freed Kansas, while others say it plunged the land back into civil war. Truth lies in both statements. The blow freed Kansas by plunging it into civil war and compelling men to fight for freedom, which they had vainly hoped to gain by political diplomacy. That's an interesting take, right? Yeah. 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 
So later on, he's asked by a soldier about what happened because um, he's always pretty coy about what, what his role in it. So one, one of them asks him, you know, what really happened? What did you do? Did you kill those men? And he said, I believe I was doing God's service. And his wife apparently said, then, Captain, do you think that God uses you as an instrument in his hands to kill men? And Brown replies, I think he has used me as an instrument to kill men. And if I live, I think he will use me as an instrument to kill a good many more. Oh, boy. And here you have the beginning of Brown's reputation. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so September 14th and 15th, <laughs> another attack by the slavers on Lawrence. And uh, John Brown is there. This time he's there. Um, he's at Lawrence and he's more or less in charge of at least a par big part of the defense. So he tells his men the following quote. Now is probably the last opportunity you will have of seeing a fight, so you had better do your best. Wait until they get within 25 yards of you, get a good object, be sure you see the hindsight of your gun, and then fire. A great deal of powder and lead and very precious time is wasted by shooting too high. If all the bullets which had ever been aimed at me had hit me, I would have been as full of holes as a riddle. So he has the Sharps rifleman form a line. He has 100 men with Sharps rifles. Um... And in, in the face of this line, the 2,500 Missourians who come to uh, sack Lawrence again retreat. They can't handle the, 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 the rifles are too good and the, the line is just picking them apart. So they retreat back to a town called Franklin. And then Governor Geary shows up. And Geary warns the Missourians politically that if they sack Lawrence again, that would possibly if defeat Buchanan and elect Fremont. Do you know who these people are? <clears throat> yeah. The Democratic and, and Republican uh, or Whig nominees for president. Okay. So Lincoln's not in the in the running yet. No. And then he so he writes an arrest warrant for Brown, gives it to Samuel Walker, but he tells him to warn Brown. So Brown leaves he leaves he leaves Kansas. He figures uh, as as uh, Du Bois says that the battle's pretty much won. So he figures um, the state was now bound to be free. And further than that, few Kansans cared. Um, and, and it was, you know, Brown was willing to fight to see to it that the state was free, but he doesn't really care about the free soil movement, right? He, no. He's not, he's an, he's an abolitionist. He's not all, he's not just for white settlers, you know, to have not, to have free land without slavery. He is, he has a different mission. No, he's so, definitely not one of them. And, and he's going to be an embarrassment, obviously. Yeah, exactly. So Du Bois says, you know, among they don't believe in equality between white and black, and quote among such folk there was no place for John Brown. Um, just a word about Buchanan and Fremont. I think yeah. Fremont was a general or at least a colonel, and he was instrumental in um, getting California into the Union as a non-slave state. Uh, well, he was out there in person, either exploring or 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 conquering. I don't remember which exactly. <laughs> Right. But uh, Buchanan, obviously, as the Southern Democrat, won the election and became president. Right. Um, one more word about Lawrence, if you don't mind. Uh, that was 1856, right? Yeah. 
and then the defense of Lawrence. Yeah, both both times. Yeah. Well, it's not the last time though. Uh, during the Civil War, Lawrence was the site of another attack. Um, it wasn't a military target, but it was attacked by a group known as Quantrill's Raiders. So a group of uh, Confederate uh, irregulars on horseback rode into Lawrence, Kansas. Have you ever heard of William Quantrill? No. He was a uh, uh, a thief, a murderer, and uh, leader of a large gang, which included Jesse and Frank James. Oh, okay. So these guys rode in, during the Civil War, these guys rode into Lawrence, Kansas, and simply started shooting people. They killed about 150 men and boys. This was August of 1863. So obviously they were paying Lawrence back for the crime of supporting free free soil, free state. So here's the big, uh, here's the big, another big Rubicon moment, the Dred Scott case of 1857. Um, so in 1846, this slave, Dred Scott, tries to purchase his freedom from Irene Emerson, his owner, in the free state of Illinois. She's a widow. He had belonged, Scott had belonged to her husband, I guess. She refuses to sell him, but it's in Illinois, which is a free state. So he petitions to the U all the case goes all the way up to the Supreme court, the U S Supreme court with abolitionist lawyers, right? The Supreme court decides six, three. So we've got this six, three kind of regressive majority on the Supreme court. Apparently have you ever heard of a situation like that? (laughs) Um, So the Supreme court decides six, three, that a black person has quote, no rights. A white man is bound to respect unquote. So that means free state or not, whatever, uh, you you are a slave, right? So that basically means the Missouri Compromise of 1820 is unconstitutional. And Judge Taney, one of the Supreme Court judges, he reasons that if they had ruled in Scott's favor, this is a slippery slope. What next? Black, the, if you rule in Scott's favor, that means Black Americans are just steps away from free movement, free speech, and potentially even the right to bear arms. But don't they already have free movement and free speech if they're free? Uh, I guess this is something that Judge Taney does not like. But I mean, that this is the, the nature of the system, right? It's This is what proves that you, you either have slavery everywhere or you don't because... Well, or you, you have some kind of in-between status where you're not a slave, but you have no rights. Yeah, exactly. And then you're you're bound to be captured and re-enslaved. And that in that period after the fugitive slave law, you had all all kinds of free black people who are just taken and enslaved and put into slavery in mm. in the South, even if they're born free. What can they do? They can't prove it's not a court where you can prove that you're not a slave, right? Um there's so the British, I mean, this brings us back another another point to the British. Like there's a case where a slave kidnapped from Sierra Leone and taken as a slave to French Guyana smuggles himself to Salem in the US, and the British consul takes him into his own house to avoid the fugitive slave law. 
and the British, I mean, the British, from the British point of view here, abolition is really good politics in the sense that you have your black colonies in the Caribbean that will, that will fight to stay out of the American Union because it's slavery, right? So, and Canada too, like Canadian, Canadian abolitionists, you know, black uh, British subjects from the Caribbean don't want to be part of the U.S. So they're going to refuse, they're going to fight against Manifest Destiny because the U.S. is synonymous with slavery. And so the British have good reason if they want to hold on to their possessions uh, to oppose slavery and to continue in an abolitionist um, position. Hmm. In May 1858, there's a bunch of Georgian uh, people in Kansas who kill farmers near a blacksmith's shop. Brown shows up with a band of men and they fight a guerrilla campaign all fall. And they do a bunch of high profile rescues, some of which Brown writes about in the New York Tribune. Here's a really amazing story about the winter of 1858. So Brown is on one of these rescues and one of the fugitive slaves that's rescued, Samuel Harper, writes <laughs> writes this up. So there's a group of 12 people. Brown is leading this rescue operation. There's a bunch of slave hunters that are after them. They stop at a house and a gang of slave hunters shows up at the house. So one of Brown's men, a white guy, Stevens, he goes up to the slave hunters and he says, hey, guys, you guys look like you're looking for something. (laughs) So they say to him, yes, we think as you have some of our slaves up yonder in that their house. And Stevens says, is that so? Well, come on right along with me and you can look them over and see. So Stevens goes to the house, picks up a shotgun points it at them and says you want to see your slaves does you well just look up them barrels and see if you can find them (laughs) so the slave catchers uh freak out stevens locks their leader up and john brown goes and talks to this prisoner and he says i'll show you what it is to look after slaves my man (laughs) but uh after giving him a good scare brown actually lets him go And the marshal comes back with 75 men. So Brown has 14 men. The marshal surrounds the house with 75 men. So Samuel Harper, the fugitive slave, he says, we was all afraid we was going to be took for sure. But the captain, he just says, get ready, boys, and we'll whip them all. (laughs) There was only 14 of us together, but the captain was a terror to them. And when he stepped out of the house and went for them, the whole 75 of them started running. Brown captured five prisoners, including a doctor and a lawyer, and they had nice horses. He told five of us slaves to mount the beasts, and we rode them while the white men had to walk. It was early in the spring, and the mud on the roads was way over their ankles. I just tell you it was mighty tough walking, and you can believe those fellows had enough of slave hunting. The next day, the captain let them all go. So part of Brown's secret is that he's very bad at math. (laughs) able to count (laughs) well neither can his enemies apparently yeah yeah i think i think by this point people just hear that john brown is there and they freak out 
So uh, that happens, right? In war, yeah. there's like rep commanders, or I mean, you were we were talking about Napoleon. I mean, it's not Brown is not Napoleon, but you were saying that um, the European armies that opposed Napoleon had a practice of if Napoleon is on the field, you don't fight the battle. Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. Your reputation precedes you, and then the other side of almost lost the battle before it's begun. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned in our Garibaldi episode, our Italian unification, that there's a guy named Hugh Forbes who fights alongside Garibaldi. So Forbes comes to um, America, and he's a military man, and he wants to train abolitionists for the war. But him and Brown, they get along initially, but they end up not getting along by the end because Forbes just always wants more money. He's always disappointed by the numbers of men. Uh, in Du Bois's words, quote, no money, no few followers and little glory in sight. So his big uh, his big plans don't amount to very much. But uh, kind of cool historical connection. So then there's the BC, the British Columbia problem. OK, so this is this comes from Gerald Horn, but there's a whole bunch of Americans flooding into British Columbia and attacking indigenous people, um, you know, trying to do the same thing that Americans have done in parts of Canada for some century, for over a century, right? They're trying to basically make a fact on the ground and then potentially turn it into a uh, an American territory. So there's the person in charge there is Sir James Douglas, and he has British Columbia extended to try to contain the U.S. So Douglas, Gerald Horn is really interested in Douglas because James Douglas has a black ancestor on his mother's side. He's married to a uh, Amelia Connolly, whose mother is actually Cree. Um, but he's not like a he's not a he's not great for the indigenous people of the territory by any means. He runs a whole sham treaty process takes a whole bunch of land from indigenous nations but um he does he does um you know it's it's a, just a fascinating figure in this period because it it shows the nature of the british um again like another reason why the british would be absolutely fools to ally with the slave power right mm-hmm. um and Frederick Douglass has a good quote. He says, the fate of the black man and the red man are int- intimately connected. Although a lot of abolitionists, a lot of abolitionists didn't get this. Frederick Douglass did, and John Brown did to his credit as well. Um, okay, so now we're coming to the Harper's Ferry plan, specifically. So before, let me frame it with a quote by Frederick Douglass. He says, Uh, There is no subject which in its interest and importance will be remembered longer or will form a more thrilling chapter in American history than this strange, wild, bloody, and mournful drama. And he asks himself rhetorically, was this in vain? And he answers his own question. To this, I answer 10,000 times no. So just recall uh, the secret societies of the Underground Railroad. They call themselves the Leagues of Freedom. And they operate along the Appalachians, which is Harriet Tubman's favored route, and another along the swamps of the Potomac River. So there's these these specific routes that are well-traveled by the Underground Railroad. So Brown knows these routes. Uh, you know, they, he knows a lot about the territory. 
And Harper's Ferry has an armory that's the, a key strategic point for the country. The mountains uh, and the swamps. So I'm quoting uh, Du Bois. The mountains and the swamps of the south were... Oh, no, this is Brown I'm quoting. The mountains and the swamps of the south were intended for by the Almighty for a refuge for the slave and a defense against the oppressor. So the idea is fairly simple to kick off the guerrilla campaign. It's a big symbolic thing because it's the U.S. armory. You take the arms in an ars- in the arsenal up to the mountains, cut the ter- telegraph wires, tear up the railroad track, raise a series of bands of guerrillas, establish a chain of posts in the mountain, hold the egress to the free states, and retreat. So the slaves are just to be armed with pikes uh, the or cold weapons, whatever, swords, etc. Officers get sharps, rifles, and revolvers. Uh, du Bois now. He knew by observation in the South that in no point was the system so vulnerable as in its fear of slave rising. Believing that such a blow would soon be struck, he wanted to organize it so as to make it more effectual, and by directing and controlling the Negroes to prevent some of the atrocities that would necessarily arise from the sudden upheaval of such a mass as the Southern slaves. So, so I, I make a distinction here. So he's not trying to create a rising he's not counting on a rising but he does believe that there's a war coming like brown by this point after the dred scott case and the fugitive slave law and everything and bleeding kansas he believes that the war is coming so he wants to he wants to create a force in the mountains that can uh through um through making possible for slaves to escape and and creating a place for them to run to to really do a lot of harm to slave to the slave states yeah right yeah yeah so there's a map i'm going to show uh, uh that du bois has which is an he shows where the the shaded portions of the map indicate where three out of the four million slaves that live in the u.s are and he call he calls Harper's he marks out Harper's Ferry as the entrance. So Du Bois says one has to but one has but to glance at the mountains and the swamps of the South to see what he calls the Great Black Way. Here, amid the mighty protection of overwhelming numbers, lay a path from slavery to freedom, and along that path were fastnesses and hiding places easily capable of becoming permanent fortified refuges for organized bands of determined armed men. So. Brown had had these kinds of maps um, on his person when he was uh, caught. And Du Bois says that Virginia, the state of Virginia, made sure to destroy them. <laughs> uh, so Du Bois says, Brown knew guerrilla warfare and the failure of the Harper's Ferry raid does not prove it a blunder from the start. The raid was not a foray from the mountains, which failed because its retreat was cut off, but it was a foray to the mountains with the village and arsenal on the way, which was defeated apparently because the arms and ammunition train failed to join the advance guard. So I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. But he's got the, these, this, a very intriguing diary entry that, uh, <laughs> that Du Bois puts in the book. Um, so he says, Kirkasia has about 550,000, Switzerland, 2 million, Guerrilla Warfare, Sea Life of Lord Wellington, page 71 to 75. Some valuable hints in the same book. Page 196, some most important instructions to officers. Uh, page 235, 
these words deep, narrow defiles where 300 men would suffice to check an army. So he's really seized of the kind of military value of a mountain setting up a an, uh, force in the mountains. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the abolitionists that tries to talk him out of it says, you and your handful of men cannot cope with the whole South. And Brown replies, I tell you, doctor, it will be the beginning of the end of slavery. Um, and D- Douglas describes when they try to talk him out of this plan. And, they, and Douglas, I think, says, nothing could shake the purpose of the old Puritan. Every difficulty had been foreseen and provided against in some manner. Um, and he tells one of his, another... Uh, abolitionist, he says, God has honored, but comparatively a very small part of mankind with any possible chance for such mighty and soul satisfying rewards. Um, There's a guy named James Jones at the convention in Canada where they're debating the plan. And Brown is talking about Haiti and the importance of the mountains and the Haitian revolution. And Jones says the Caribbean isn't a good precedent because the Haitians believed in the ideals of the French Revolution and were not so overawed by white men. And Brown says, friend Jones, you will please say no more on that side. There will be plenty to defend that side of the question. (laughs) So at some point, Brown just decides he doesn't want to debate it anymore. (laughs) He's afraid afraid he might lose the debate. (laughs) So Du Bois says this really interesting. He's he's explaining why Frederick Douglass doesn't uh, sign on. Du Bois says black people, quote, believed in John Brown, but not in his plan. They knew he was right, but they knew that for any failure in his project, they, the black men, would probably pay the cost. And the horror of that cost, none knew as they. But then on the other side, Du Bois says, quote, history and military science prove its essential soundness, but the necessary secrecy, vagueness, and intangibility of the summons, the repeated changes of date, the difficulty of communication, and the poverty of black men all made effective cooperation exceedingly difficult. All the same, all the same, 15 to 20 black men enlisted, but the date change meant only five or six made it. So in April 1858, John Brown has this key meeting in Chatham, Canada, and there are some debates. One of the debates is whether they're going to fight under the U.S. flag. Some of his black supporters don't want to. And he says, you know, we're fighting under the Stars and Stripes. That's my flag. That's what I, that's what we fight under. It's it it got, brought freedom to white men, and that's good. But now we fight so that it brings freedom to black men. Um, <laughs> and there's another uh, there's another group that says, why don't we wait for a war with a foreign power, presumably Britain, and then strike? And John Brown says, I would be the last one to take advantage of my country in the face of a foreign foe. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So I I remember we talked about that whole question of whether black people, you know, in the States could commit treason. Um, Certainly John Brown as an abolitionist believed that he could commit treason and was not willing to commit treason. So everything that he's doing, he believes he's doing uh, for America. Uh, Harriet Tubman is at one of these meetings. Logan is one at one of these meetings. I mentioned him in the last episode. And there's a financial backer who's a black woman, a widow, 
Her name is Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, and she's also at some of these meetings. Um, and they write a constitution. They have a part, they have a meeting where they write a constitution and some of this thinking by Brown goes into it. So the constitution includes the following quote, the foregoing articles shall not be, shall not be, shall be not so as in any way to encourage the overthrow of any state government or the general government of the United States and look to no dissolution of the union, but simply to amend and repeal and our flag shall be the same as that our fathers fought for under the revolution. So there was some opposition, as I said, but they insisted on the flag and on, you know, proclaiming that kind of loyal loyalism. Hmm. So uh, I just wanted to say when the pandemic is over, uh, if we run a civilization's John Brown tour of Ontario, (laughs) uh, we'll have to stop at the following places. St. Catharines, Ingersoll, Hamilton, Chatham and Queen Street West in Toronto. At this time, there were 50,000 Black Canadians, um, settled, quote Du Bois, settlements had grown up, farms had been bought, schools established, and an intricate social organization begun. In Chatham, they had a graded school, a Wilberforce Institute, several churches, a newspaper, a fire engine company, and several organizations for social intercourse and uplift. So Brown is kind of swimming in this, you know, sea <laughs> of abolitionists. Um, And he told Martin Delaney uh, the following. He said, the people of the northern states are cowards. Slavery has made cowards of them all. The whites are afraid of each other and the blacks are afraid of the whites. You can affect nothing among such people. But he does need white people because getting an armed group of black people together in Virginia is uh, not going to happen easily. So his problem is, he says, money I can get plentiful enough, but no men. Men can come without be money can come without being seen, but men are afraid of identification with me, though they favor my measures. They are cowards, sir. Cowards. Well, yeah, but <laughs> plan is a little <clears throat> risky. Um, uh, yeah. So he meets. He meets. He's actually buddies with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau. You know the quote from Henry David Thoreau. He's in prison protesting the um, Mexican-American war. And Ralph Waldo Emerson says to him, what are you doing in there? And he says to Ralph Waldo Emerson, what are you doing out there? Mm. <laughs> anyway, these were all friends. Um, so here's, a, here's, a, here's how to, if you ever are looking for tips for how to introduce yourself when you meet someone new, this is how John Brown did it. So he would meet you, shake your hand and say, you know, my name is John Brown. I consider the golden rule and declaration of independence one and inseparable. And it is better that a whole generation of men, women and children should be swept away than that this crime of slavery should exist one day longer. What do you think? Is that a the good, put that on your rule. calling court. Yeah, the golden rule. Moderation do un, in all. Do unto, no, I think do unto others, right? Isn't the golden rule Jesus? Well, I guess I'll look it up. <laughs> I think the golden rule is Jesus. If it's John Brown, it's got to be Jesus. It's Jesus who says, do unto others as yeah, you okay. would have them do unto you. I'm thinking of the golden mean. Okay. <laughs> no, this is uh, John Brown's, you know, there's there's Jesus and there's abolition. And those are the two. You don't, uh, there's no getting around either one. That's one of the funny things about the show. Um <laughs> the show is worth watching, Dave. Uh, the Good Lord Bird. 
Oh yeah. There'll there's there's scenes in the bleeding Kansas situation towards the end. I guess it's 1858, and they're in the middle of a shootout, and all his sons are around, and they're shooting, and people are shooting them, and he's uh, he's trying to explain why the situation is not that bad. You know, he's like, you have to stand fast. Um, what's the quote? And it's like a Bible quote. He's like, come on. <laughs> and they're shooting. And, they, and they, he insists that they get the quote right. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I think weird. I told you that uh, that other series that we just finished watching, uh, Hell on Wheels. Right. It's the building of the railroad after the Civil War. But the, the preacher who is there at the head of the rail uh, is a former follower of uh, John Brown. Oh, man. Okay. And he treasures his sword. Well, all right. Well, they got a sword from Washington somehow in the oh, raid. I think oh, the sword from Pot- Potawatomi. Oh, one of those. Yeah, <laughs> I see. Okay, so you know, um, you know the conspiracy theories about how the American, um, how the Americans knew about this or that, nine eleven or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, Pearl Harbor. So the Americans did know about Brown's raid in advance. There was a there was a leak. Yep. Um, he heard that, that something was happening, but he says, after the fact, he says, I was qu- the Secretary of War. This is Floyd. He says, I was satisfied in my mind that a scheme of such wickedness and outrage could not be entertained by any citizens of the United States. So I put the letter away and thought no more of it until the raid broke out. <laughs> so Du Bois's analysis of why the plan failed has everything to do with a delay. There was a big delay between the strike force getting to the armory and then the wagon um, that had three miles to cover, uh, a heavy farm wagon with four large strong horses and a dozen or more men to help. Uh, du Bois says the fact that it took these men 11 hours to move two wagon loads of material less than three miles is the secret of the extraordinary failure of Brown's foray at the time when victory was in his grasp. With haste, it is certain that despite the muddy road, the first load of arms could have been at the schoolhouse before 8 in the morning and the whole of the stores by 10. Brown was surrounded by 1 p.m. and the wagon arrived at 4 p.m. It was this inexcusable delay on the part of Tid and Cook. These are the two guys that were in charge of getting the wagon there and possibly William Thompson that undoubtedly made the raid a failure. To be sure, John Brown never said so, never hinted that anyone was to blame but himself, but that was John Brown's way. So they go, they take the armory, and they're waiting for the wagons to get there. They want to load up the wagons, and they want to go up the mountain. It's not that, um, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They're not planning to stay there for long. They're not trying to hold this town. They're trying to get there, do a big raid, and go up the mountain maybe run off some of the slaves from town, whoever wants to come. Yeah, and no, then I'm yeah, not disputing ahead. Du Bois, uh, but I read another account that suggested that one of the major reasons for the failure was that they didn't do any recon. Nobody mm-hmm. from ba- Brown's group went into Harper's Ferry to see what the situation was and how many soldiers were there and where things were they just kind of walked in (laughs) i mean it could be but i i'd be surprised because there were there was very little defense right they encountered so their problem wasn't overcoming the initial defenses their problem was that once they had overcome the initial defenses they were they didn't they didn't move 
they didn't, uh, you know, because I think he really wanted those guns, right? He wanted to take a lot of arms up yeah. to the mountain. Yeah. And without the wagon, it's almost like, what are we, what did we do this for? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'm there's the sure symbolic. They, I'm not sure that they would have made it to right. the mountains. That's. But it's not that big of a climb. That's what the other thing is. An hour's climb up the mountain and you're in difficult terrain already. Yeah. Um, so that's what happens. So by one o'clock, um, Du Bois writes, his options are basically you abandon the whole plan and retreat. You go up the mountain, but abandon the baggage train crew, which includes slaves who are going to die for sure. Men like Tid and Cook who are going to die for sure. Um, using hostages or using hostages to force terms, which he regretted not doing afterwards. So the guy who uh, assembles the force and arrives to uh, try to get Brown to surrender is a person named Robert E. Lee, who presumably we're going to hear quite a bit about in the next episode. Yeah, yeah. So he sends one of his aides to ask for Brown's surrender. And by this time, the battle is lost, right? I mean, there's no chance. They're completely surrounded. Uh, but Brown says, no, thank you. I prefer to die here. Um, when they do attack, uh, when Lee's men attack, uh, there's a guy, L- Lieutenant Green, who strikes him with a sword thrust in the stomach and smashes his head up with a with the flat part of the blade. Um, so on the uh, on noon of the 18th, uh, the governor of Virginia is standing over a wounded John Brown and he asks, who are you? And John Brown gives the following speech. He says, my name is John Brown. I have been well known as John, old John Brown of Kansas. Two of my sons were killed here today, and I'm dying too. I came here to liberate slaves and was to receive no reward. I acted from a sense of duty, and I'm content to await my fate. I think the crowd have treated me badly. I am an old man. Yesterday, I could have killed whom I chose, but I had no desire to kill any person and would not have killed a man had they not tried to kill me and my men. I could have sacked and burned the town, but I did not. I have treated the persons whom I took as hostages kindly, and I appeal to them for the truth of what I say. If I had succeeded in running off slaves at this time, I could have raised 20 times as many men as I have now for a similar expedition, but I have failed. So um, the townspeople are pretty, I mean, it's Virginia, right? A bunch of abolitionists just attacked a town in Virginia. So they... uh, they defile the corpses. They use them for target practice. There's a lot of uh, rage they take out on the uh, raiders. There's a really interesting uh, interrogation, which Du Bois quotes in full. So the governor, Wise, um, is asking Brown a whole range of questions. So I'm going to just do this dialogue because it's pretty amazing. So Wise asks Brown, why did you do it secretly? And Brown says, because I thought that necessary to success for no other reason. Reason I agree with Mr. Smith that moral suasion is hopeless. I don't think the people of the slave states will ever consider the subject of slavery in its true light till some other argument is resorted to than moral suasion. Wise says, did you expect a general rising of the slaves in case of your success? Brown says, no, sir, nor did I wish it. I expected to gather them up from time to time and set them free. Wise did you expect to hold possession here till then? Brown, you overrate your strength in supposing I could have been taken if I had not allowed it. I was too tardy after commencing the open attack and delaying my movements through Monday night and up to the time I was attacked by the government's troops. Where did you buy your arms? 
That I will not state. I have nothing to say, only that I claim to be here in carrying out a measure I believe perfectly justifiable and not to act the part of an incendiary or a ruffian, but to aid those suffering great wrong. I wish to say furthermore that you had better, all you people at the South, prepare yourselves for a settlement of this question that must come up for settlement sooner than you are prepared for it. You may dispose of me very easily. I am nearly disposed of now, but this question is still to be settled. This Negro question, I mean, the end of that is not yet. And Wise says, what would you do if you had every N-word in this country? And Brown says, I would set them free. Wise says, to set them free would sacrifice the life of every man in this country, which is a real window into their thinking. Yeah. Right? Uh, and Brown says, I do not think so. <laughs> and Wise says, I know it. You are fanatical. And Brown says, and I think you are fanatical. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad, and you are mad. His last words to the governor are as follows. There is an, this is a famous quote of his. There is an eternity behind and an eternity before. And this little speck in the center, however long, is but comparatively a minute. The difference between your tenure and mine is trifling, and I therefore tell you to be prepared. I am prepared. You have a heavy responsibility, and it behooves you to prepare more than it does me. So because there have been some high-profile rescues, <laughs> the abolitionists actually approach him with some ideas for rescuing him. Uh, from Virginia, and he rebuffs them. He says, I may be wrong, but I think perhaps my object would be nearer fulfillment if I should die. Uh, and it put the whole situation of having captured Brown puts Virginia in a dilemma because there's a mob that actually wants to tear him apart. They want to prove that they're legitimate, you know, that they follow the rule of law and so on. Brown wants to put them on trial and slavery on trial. They want to, his lawyers want to plead insanity, but he refuses. And so apparently there's a moment Du Bois describes when they pronounce him guilty and it's total dead silence in the courtroom. And old Brown himself said not even a word, but on as, as on any previous day, turned to adjust his palate and then composedly stretched himself upon it. When they sentence him to death, they ask him if he has anything to say. So now I'll quote again. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but there's a... There's a lot that's good in here. So he says, in the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted, the design on my part to free the slaves. I intended certainly to have made a clean thing of the matter as I did last winter when I went into Missouri and there took slaves without the snapping of a gun on either side, moved them through the country and finally left them in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on a larger scale. That is all I intended. I never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property or to excite and incite slaves to rebellion or to make insurrection. I think uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure that may have he may have been changed, changed a little bit of what he intended. there. He says, I have another objection. And that is, it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. So here's a very famous quote from him. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case. Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either mother, brother, mother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, 
and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, I would have it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Um, there's some more, uh, there's some Bible stuff. <laughs> uh, it, the Bible teaches me that all things whatsoever that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember that them that are in bonds as bound with them. I endeavored to act upon that instruction. I say I'm yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done in behalf of his despised poor was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country, whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit. So let it be done. And there's a little bit more, but you get the idea. So he's hanged on December 2nd. That that was his last speech. There's also a letter, a kind of a note that he left. Um, and the note is very short, and it says the following. I, John Brown, am quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think vainly, flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. So that is the absolute last word <laughs> of John Brown. Um, so part of why Brown, I think, is presented as crazy uh, has to do with the way people position themselves afterwards. So Lincoln in particular, he says that Brown's plan was quote, so absurd that the slaves, with all their ignorance, saw plainly enough that it could not succeed, which Douglas doesn't agree with. So Douglas says, if Brown did not end the war that ended slavery, he did at least begin the war that ended slavery. So Du Bois notes, makes the following notes. One, the slaves of Virginia did start slowly to rise. They didn't hear about it that day, right? It all happened really fast. But there were many mysterious fires which is the uh, favored weapon of slaves, right? All around Harper's Ferry in the time, in the weeks after. There was also emergency sales of slaves and emergency purchases of pistols. Um, one declaration suggests that slaves were sold by the thousands in Virginia around Harper's Ferry at a loss of $10 million by one declaration. Um, the politicians of the South, the Mason, Davis, Wise, Hunter, they conclude that John Brown is just one of more that are coming. So they figure the only way to protect slavery is secession. And abolitionists, but it goes well beyond abolitionists by this point, are enraged in the North by the arrogance of the Virgin, you know, Virginia, the slave power and the trial. So uh, the abolitionists uh, are still working, but this is a big... Um, <laughs> This is a big moment. So Garrison, who, you know, I'm, I'm reading about Garrison's statements during Reconstruction, and they're still not great. But after Brown is hanged, Garrison says, let no one who glories in the revolutionary struggle of 1776 deny the right of the slaves to imitate the example of our fathers. He says, I am a non-resistant, a believer in the inviolability of all human life under all circumstances. Therefore, in the name of God, I disarm John Brown and every slave at the South, but I do not stop there. If I should, I should be a monster. I also disarm in the name of God 
every slaveholder and tyrant in the world. As a peaceman, an ultra-peaceman, I am prepared to say success to every slave insurrection at the South and in every slave country whenever commenced. I cannot but wish success to all slave insurrections. And then he says a thing that famous non-violence people, including Gandhi, have said. Rather than see men wearing their chains in a cowardly and servile spirit, I would, as an advocate of peace, much rather see them breaking the head of the tyrant with their chains. Wow. There's a memorial, uh, the death anniversary at the end of 1860, and there are hecklers. There's a riot with fighting. They reconvene elsewhere, and John Brown Jr. uh, tells the crowd, um, he says, instead of saying liberty or death, they should say, give me liberty or I will give you death. <laughs> and Douglas says, uh, you know, the need of the hour is the John Brown way. And as the threats of secession get louder and louder, like from the South, uh, the abolitionist slogan becomes, let the union perish mm. rather than let the slavers win. And that concludes my remarks on John Brown today. So you don't seem to think that he was crazy. No, no. Uh, for me, now, after, after this research process, I think it really is one of the, one of the do the most with the least things in history. I mean, r- really, just, just a guy. I mean, like, you know, we're, we're talking, for me, it's like Toussaint Louverture or Dessalines. Like, these are people who when you think about what happened, all the ripple effects of that action of somebody, you know, he could have, there was, there were, how he was in no different from millions of Americans at that time, right? Like any Northerner could have done what he did in a way. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And, it's, yeah, and we've, and we've talked about the, uh, the review of that biography of Ulysses Grant in, uh, the war nerd yeah and yeah. that writer makes the point that if you take a look at leading figures of the middle of the 19th century you could find 50 or 100 with just the same kind of um attitude conviction or, yeah there's there's even more to it there's okay so brown is a, a larger than life figure he's got some rather odd approaches uh, <laughs> he he seems to be convinced that he's on a mission from god uh and there's a certain uh wow it's beyond rash it's it's just yeah action 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 That's i, his, I can uh... achieve the impossible because of uh, whatever god is with me or yeah. you know or it needs to be done regardless of whether it's impossible I think we could find you uh, 50 or 100 equally uh, unusual characters, unusual to our eyes, Yeah. but in the middle of the 19th century, pretty thick on the ground, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. You think of and, uh, uh, Custer? Yeah. Uh, wow. There's plenty of this type of character around. So maybe he just wasn't that unusual then. Yeah, and just it's actually just his politics that are so different. 
it's not his character or his fanaticism. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was telling Dan, I was I was researching this and I was talking to Dan a bunch and I was telling him these anecdotes and, and stuff. And Dan was, I was like, yeah, I, don't, I think it's totally unfair to call him crazy. And Dan was like, you know, if you describe, if you take any of these figures in their own words and describe, have them describing exactly what it is they want and what they want to achieve, they all sound like this, you know, like they all sound like this, especially the, you know, on the imperialist side, you know, like Cecil Rhodes, uh, you know, looked up at the sky and lamented not being able to conquer the stars or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I'm thinking of a number of uh, uh, army officers from uh, the wars of the mid century and, and some of the colonial wars who did. Yeah had no con- they were bad at math you know they, they didn't <laughs> stop to calculate the odds uh they were totally convinced that they were going to win regardless of the situation yeah and- yeah i mean it's almost mischievous right like he's so confident when they're surrounded by 75 men and he says well get ready <laughs> it's time to go and whip them yeah there's a certain level of confidence that to us seems like megalomania yeah but there was a lot of that going around (laughs) right he is not the only one who who's infected with this uh attitude but he has been portrayed as uh a madman yep so we're going over to the so we've sparked it right now it's now it's to talk about the war next episode. We'll do that. And the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh yeah.